Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. Thanks for being here for church history. If you are a visitor with us, this is not our worship service. That's at 1030. This is something we do before that, where we equip the saints theologically in this semester and next semester. We are studying church history. But we're going to make it fun. Last week, we had our introduction, so we learned why we should study church history. If you did not get a chance to listen to Jeff's lecture, I would encourage you to do so, but today will be our first actual lesson in church history, so let me pray for us, and then we will talk about what life was like in the early church. Let's pray. Father, we come before you through the Son and by the Spirit, and we confess that you are great and that we are not, and we need your help. We thank you for your love for your church. We thank you that though there are times it has been pure and though there are times it has not been pure, it has always still been your church. So would you uh, help us learn? Would you uh, open our eyes to see uh, these lessons that we could learn from our forefathers in the faith? We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Today, we're going to talk about the earliest Christianity. What was Christianity like during the time of the Roman Empire right after the book of Acts? Did it look like this? Were they using a face mic? Were they in a building with a, you know, a steeple or stained glass? Were they sitting in comfortable chairs? What was church like? It hasn't always been like this. Today, we're going to look at the earliest Christianity. So we're going to look at really what, it, what Christianity would have looked like really for the kind of first through the third centuries, maybe a little bit into the fourth century, as we talk about persecution and all these kind of things. So this lesson will begin where the book of Acts leaves off. So here's the last thing in Acts, Acts 28, 30 through 31, that's he, that's Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all, welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Dot, 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 this lesson, okay? That's where we go. We're right after the book of Acts, right after the time of the New Testament. What was Christianity like? The first thing that we have to do is we have to look at the culture in which Christianity developed, which was one of the most interesting cultures in history, the Roman Empire, okay? So let's look at the Roman Empire, a little bit of the social context. I've included this acrostic. This is typically how they portrayed Rome as these different letters here, S-P-Q-R. That stands for Senatus Populusque Romanus, the Senate and the people of Rome. You'll see this in Rome today under, on ancient architecture. You ever seen the movie Gladiator? If you haven't, see it. Not with your kids that are like four, but see it. There's a great scene where Maximus Decimus Meridius, you know, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, he is sitting there getting ready to fight. And he has Senatus Populus K. Romanus, the Senate and the people of Rome, those letters tattooed on his arm, and he's scraping it off. Okay, he's scraping out because he's been betrayed by Rome. Interestingly enough, there is a deleted scene in that movie that you can get in the special edition that has Christians being killed in the Colosseum. Okay, so the, the director decided to take it out of the actual movie, but they're tied to stakes as they let out the wild animals, and it's meant to be Christians being killed in the Colosseum. So you should check that out. Let's talk a little bit about the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire reached its apex under the emperor Trajan, who ruled from 98 to 117 AD. And it composed about 2 million square miles. How big is that, Zach? From Kuwait to Portugal. You have to understand, that is not only a huge amount of territory, that's where a lot of people live in the ancient world. And they don't have airplanes. They don't have cars. They don't have text messaging. You have to walk and or ride a beast wherever you want to go. And so this is an enormous empire. It's an enormously powerful empire. They're controlling most of the known world, certainly all of the Western world. The Romans had 53,000 miles of constructed roads by the fourth century. If you've ever heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome, that's because that was literally the case. All these major roads coming out of Rome were sprawled all throughout the ancient Roman Empire. And they had the most powerful army in the world. Up until that point, the most powerful army anyone had ever seen. 
Their soldiers could march 25 miles a day on foot. I don't know if you know what that means. At a normal walking pace, that means they're walking from eight to nine hours a day without stopping, and they're carrying shields, metal armor, not just Kevlar or a plate carrier, something we would have today, swords, all this heavy stuff. So they were a uh, pretty hardcore uh, army. They'd conquered, again, the known world. Rome was the center of the pagan world, and they had a vast array of temples and idols to the Roman gods, okay? We'll see this not only as we study 1 Corinthians, but obviously it's a very pagan place, uh, the Roman Empire was. The primary language in the Roman Empire was actually Greek and not Latin. Latin was used for formal occasions. It was used for written documents. Most people, though, spoke Greek. That was the most common language uh, at the time. That's why, by the way, your New Testament is not written in Latin. It's written in Greek. That would have been the common language of the people and more common even so than Latin would be. What did Roman women look like? Okay, Roman women were purported to be very beautiful. Many of them were athletic because they valued athletics in ancient Rome. Most of them would have had dark, curly hair, although women would use animal fat to dye their hair. What were the most common colors that a Roman woman would dye her hair? Red and blonde, okay? Red and blonde. They would often wear earrings. They would have armbands of gold, uh, and they had fancy hairstyles. We'll see that that gets, becomes a thing in 1 Corinthians. They'll talk about women and their hair and all that kind of stuff in worship. We'll talk about that when we get to that section of 1 Corinthians. They wore a female version of a toga called a stola. A stola is more of a trendy, form-fitting toga for ladies, okay? So that's what they would typically wear. You were required, if you were a Roman citizen, to offer worship to the Roman emperor. Typically, what you would have to do is you would have to take a knee and you would have to give some incense, burn some incense, or you would have to pour wine as a drink offering, but you had to show honor to the emperor, not just showing honor like you would today to a public official, but actually recognizing them as some type of minor deity, okay? And many of the temples, the way that you would worship is by having sex with male and female temple prostitutes. We talked about that some last week with 1 Corinthians. With all that in mind, let me give you this picture that's given of Rome in the book of Revelation, okay? Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, right? Because Rome owns the world at this point. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual morality and with the wine of whose sexual morality the dwellers, of earth have be, uh, dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven uh, heads and 10 horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written, a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. In the book of Daniel, uh, kingdoms of the world that are opposed to God are seen as beasts. So what do you have in Revelation? You have this beast who's identified with Rome. And what are all these things that Rome's identified with? Sexual immorality, killing God's people, drunkenness, debauchery, all that kind of stuff. That is how that is pictured. By the way, if you want to know more on how to interpret the book of Revelation, we have a lesson called Symbols or Symbolism in the book of Revelation. I would encourage you to listen to. Uh, the beast is Rome. They're dealing with this in the first century, right? For all of you people that think if you get a COVID vaccine, they'll put a chip in your arm and you've read too much left behind. That's not what it's about. It's about what's going on in the first century. Rome had the gladiatorial games where people would fight to death for sport and where people would be killed by wild animals just for the amusement of the audience. It's estimated, hear this, that 3.5 million people, that's half of the Holocaust, 3.5 million people were killed in the arena. 
In one battle, the emperor Titus had the Colosseum flooded with water to have a naval battle where 3,000 men fought in this huge fight. That would have been crazy to see. They plug up the Colosseum, they fill it with water, have ships, and 3,000 people fight while you're eating your popcorn and cheering, okay? Absolutely crazy. Gladiator sweat was sold at the Colosseum and their blood was drunk as an aphrodisiac. So any of you uh, husbands looking for good Valentine's Day ideas, perhaps just take your girl to the Colosseum. You see, that's the romantic place. This is the context in which the early church would grow up, okay? That's the, 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 the culture, that's the setting where the church is gonna grow right after the time of the apostles and even some during the time of the apostles. So that's Rome. Now let's get into Christianity in Rome. Let's talk about what an early church service would look like. First, Services were done in the vernacular, meaning the language of the people. Now, that doesn't surprise you. You know why? Because you can understand me. That doesn't surprise you because you speak English and I'm speaking English. But for most of church history, that wasn't the case. For most of church history, services were done in Latin and you didn't know Latin. So the pastor would speak and you would just kind of sit there and hear all these words you didn't know. And then you would go take communion, but you didn't get the wine. Only that was only for the the clergy. You just got the bread as the laity. And that was it. That's not what's going on in the early church, though. In the early church, they're using the vernacular of the people. uh, And so they want the people to understand the lesson, not just honor the language by using Latin. They met in small house churches, okay? So you need to understand this building is not the church. You and I are the church. This building is not sacred, okay? You think it is because you grew up and your parents told you this is God's house, This is not God's house. God does not dwell in temples made with human hands. God dwells in his people, okay? And so uh, they didn't have buildings like this. You wouldn't put like First Presbyterian Rome or First Baptist Rome on your building and let all the the, uh, Roman soldiers come and kill you. So what they would do is they met in house churches. We see this even in the New Testament. First Corinthians 16, 19 through 20. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, that's Priscilla, together with the church in their house. Send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Colossians 4.15. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Romans 16.5. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Okay? So they would meet inside and they would meet in people's homes, mainly for secrecy. Mainly for secrecy. They couldn't own public buildings. They'd be persecuted. So they did that for, uh, for secrecy purposes. And it was contrasted with pagan worship. Pagan worship was typically done outside, okay, where the gods could see you. It was typically done outside. So Christian worship was done inside. Purpose-built church buildings didn't actually exist until the beginning of the third century, okay, the beginning of the third century. So you don't have church buildings for several generations after the times of the apostles. They're just meeting in people's homes primarily, and we'll talk about another place they met in just a second. The services focused on a few things, singing, scripture reading, teaching or preaching, praying, and partaking of communion. Does that sound familiar to you? That is exactly the thing we do here at Parkway, and that's intentional. The reason that we do that is because that's how God's people traditionally worship. We also see that in the New Testament. Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the preaching when we open, for example, 1 Corinthians, written by one of the apostles, and we teach it. That's the apostles' teaching. And the fellowship, hanging out with each other. We got community groups. We talk before and after services. To the breaking of bread, that's communion, and to the prayers. So the reason that we don't have ribbon dancers up on stage doing their thing, the reason we don't have a children's choir or something like this is we think that what you most need are the things that they're doing in the Bible during church. Okay? Not that those other things would necessarily be wrong, 
but that these, we think these things are most important, and we see that actually in the earliest church as well. According to the first apology of Justin Martyr, who's an early church leader, and what is called the Didache, services included the following. First, the church would meet on, quote, the day of the sun. What do you think that is? Sunday. By the way, they, a lot of early Christians still would go worship on Saturday. Saturday is still the Sabbath. This whole idea that the Sabbath has become Sunday is not something the early church held. They would just worship on two days. You had the Sabbath on Saturday, and then they would have Christian worship on Sunday, but Sunday didn't replace Saturday. First, there was a reading of the memoirs of the apostles, which is scripture, right? The letters that the apostles would write, and the writings of the prophets. So Old Testament and New Testament, quote, as long as time permits. Then an exhortation or homily was given by what they called the president, which is a pastor or a preacher. By the way, if you want to start calling us presidents, we're fine with that, okay? We won't, we won't tell you not to because they're doing that in the early church. The president would give a, uh, a homily. The congregation then stood for prayer. They then celebrated communion. They ended with a kiss of peace. Why? Because you're brothers and sisters. And so uh, when the world is not riddled with COVID, you would give somebody a kiss of peace Deacons would then take communion to the homes of those who could not attend or were sick, and lastly, they took up a collection for the poor, the sick, orphans, strangers, etc. So that's what a typical church service would have looked like. That would have been kind of the order. A few other things to know. Those who were non-believers or who had not been baptized were dismissed before partaking of communion. Sometimes people ask us, Zach, why do you guys say that you need to be baptized before partaking of communion? It's not because we think baptism is necessary for salvation. It's because you're not allowed to ever take communion when you're walking in sin. And to not be baptized, if you know you're a believer, is to walk in sin. All of church history did not allow people to take communion before being baptized. You're born and then you eat, and the symbolism must follow that. And so what they would do in the early church is you were allowed to hear the sermon, right? They wanted to be evangelistic so people could hear the gospel, but you couldn't even sit in the same room when they did communion. That was a family meal. So they would dismiss not only those who weren't believers, but those who were Christians but had not yet been baptized, what are called catechumen, people getting ready, ready for baptism, and they would be dismissed, and then they would partake of communion together. Before they partake of communion, they would have a communal meal called an agape, Agape means love. This is a love meal before partaking of communion. So what you would do, and it, you can't do that in a church that's this big, but what you would do when it's a house church of maybe 10 people is you could all gather around the table and have a meal where you're actually getting full, eating your dinner that evening, but also part of that meal was set aside for the actual partaking of communion with the bread and with the wine. Baptism was done naked. Uh-oh, scandal. Go ahead and underline that word in your notes. I'm kidding, don't do that. Baptism was done naked in running water by full immersion. Sprinkling or pouring was only done if immersion wasn't available. So you say, wait a second, Zach, why are they doing that? Uh, in Jewish proselyte baptism, so if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become Jewish, in addition to being circumcised, if you were a male, you would have to be baptized, and they did baptisms naked. Why? To symbolize new birth. If a woman was being baptized, the men would turn their backs, okay? So the men would not look at the woman who was uh, naked, obviously, to, for a sense of propriety. Also, deaconesses helped women with baptism because it helps avoid just a lot of awkwardness there in the water, okay? Why did they do it in running water? Because the water is living. You don't want some sort of gross, stagnant water. That's not going to wash away your sins. You need this flowing this uh, living water or whatever, and so that's why they would typically do that. But they made exceptions. So let's look at the Didache, which is written around the first century. Concerning baptism, baptize thus, having first rehearsed all these things, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running water. If thou hast no running water, baptize with other water and other water. And if thou art not able to baptize in cold water, then do so in warm. 
But if thou hast neither, pour water three times on the head. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And before the baptism, let the baptizer and him who is to be baptized fast and any others who are able. And thou shalt bid him who is to be baptized to fast one or two days before. So baptism was done by immersion. That was the preferred method because that's the method that is shown in the New Testament and the most common meaning of the word baptizo. They allowed for other things. If you couldn't do that, you didn't have a body of water to get down into, but that's typically how it was done. In the early church, there was an emphasis on holy living. In addition to many things that we think are sinful today, they also thought that being an actor, attending chariot races, using any form of contraception, or holding public office because you had to worship the emperor were all sinful. In addition to Sundays, they met on Wednesdays and Fridays for fasting and prayer. Now, Jews would fast on Monday and Thursday. Christians changed that to Wednesday and Friday. We don't exactly know why, but some scholars think it was to uh, correspond to Passion Week, okay, to correspond to Passion Week, that that's why they did that. Number 10, they often gathered in the tombs and in catacombs. So where can you go escape the Roman authorities? Where could you actually have grave societies that were legal in the Roman Empire? In the catacombs, in the tombs, in these big underground burial places. So they would often gather in the tombs and in catacombs to partake of communion near the bodies of those who'd been martyred. Their faith faith joined them not only to Christ, but to great Christians who have died. Eventually, that will become very paganistic because, uh, you know, there'll be this idea of venerating the dead and I have to be around the dead when I'm celebrating Christian worship and some of these kind of weird stuff, but they did that early on in the church. In addition to the cross, the fish became a symbol for Christianity, okay? You ever, uh, so, so if you're driving on the highway and somebody cuts you off and gives you the finger, what do they always have on the back of their car? Hmm? Yes, they have a fish, the little Christian-y fish. Where does that come from? That is an acrostic, okay? I've put this here. The, the Greek word for fish is ichthus, and each of those letters has something to do with Jesus if you write it out as an acrostic. Iesus, Christos, Theos, Huios, Soter, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. That's why the fish is used. Jesus is actually referred to in some early writings as the heavenly fish, and that is a reference to this. By the way, there is a typo in your notes. I know it's all stressing you out, but in the word soter, that's supposed to be in uh, uh, an omega, not an omicron. I know, some of you are ready to call for my resignation, but uh, I apologize for that. That was a typo. I had to write this fast. So there's an image right there. You see the fish, and then you see those letters. That last one, by the way, that looks like a C is the way that they would write a sigma or an S a lot of times at the end of a word, but it's the same letter. So where does the christian fish come from? It is simply an acrostic where you write out the word fish in Greek, and in Greek, next to each letter, it has something to do with Christ, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Becoming a Christian, okay? According to the apostolic tradition by Hippolytus, it was a three-year process before you could become a Christian. Think about that. So what happens in the book of Acts? How, how soon do they baptize somebody? Immediately, but let me clarify what I mean by immediately. Here's my answer is, here's, here's when you should baptize somebody. As soon as you can tell they're a believer, okay? Not necessarily immediately. I've seen churches that are like, come up for the altar call and we'll baptize you immediately. And then they make false converts and those people aren't really regenerate, okay? You should baptize as soon as you know that someone's a believer. In the book of Acts, it seems immediate. You know why? Because it's super obvious that they got converted because they're like speaking in tongues and burning their witchcraft scrolls. It's very obvious, Okay? And something today, you need to take a little more time to make sure that the person's a believer. But what the early church would do is it was a three-year process. They wanted to make sure you really knew what you were getting into. You know the Romans might kill you? Yeah. You know what we believe about Christ? Yeah. You know what we believe about atonement? Yes. I want to see you live holy, etc. And it was a three-year process before they could become a Christian. First, you were called a weeper. 
That was the first stage of becoming a Christian, a weeper, because you could repent for your sins and you could receive private instruction. You could meet with another Christian or you could meet with a pastor for private instruction as you had just become a Christian. Next, you were called a hearer. You could attend the sermons, okay? You could attend the sermons. Lost people could attend the sermons as pagans, but you could now attend the sermon as a Christian. Then you were called a kneeler and you were allowed to stay after the sermon for prayer. Typically, you would leave, but once you reach that third level, that third level of varsity Christianity, then you could stay for, uh, for prayer, but it wasn't until you were examined by a bishop and actually baptized that you could partake of communion and be a full member of the church. I think we can learn something from that. I think we don't wanna rush people too quickly into uh, baptizing them and, and saying, yes, we think you're a Christian, all that, but we also don't wanna go that slow. The answer, again, is you look for this fruit. You try to see whether or not the person is a believer. Let's talk about Roman persecution. Let's talk about Roman persecution, okay? Roman persecution was primarily local before 250, meaning Christians had been persecuted, you know, since our history, but you even see this in the New Testament, but most of that persecution is local before 250. But after 250, the Roman government had a sustained program of persecution under an edict by Diocletian in 304, Christians were to be killed on sight. And so you have different kinds of persecution going on in the early church. Sometimes it's just local. Some Roman emperors kind of look away and they don't really care. Others are really fervently wanting to have Christians killed. It just depends on who is the emperor at that time, but there is a strong system of persecution. Now, thousands and thousands of Christians were martyred under the Roman Empire, but as an interesting fact for you, more Christians were killed by reformed groups because of their Anabaptist beliefs than were killed in the entire history of Christianity before the time of Constantine. Let's read this letter together. This is long. Normally, I wouldn't put a quote this long, but this is really helpful, so I'm gonna read it, and I want you to pay attention. This is a letter written by a Roman governor. His name is Pliny the Younger, and he writes to Emperor Trajan about how he has handled persecuting Christians, okay? I'm gonna read this to you. Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserve to be punished. So he's mad just that they won't worship the Roman emperor. He just is like, listen, Christians, I don't care about your weird beliefs. Be a good Roman citizen, salute the flag, worship the Roman emperor, and everything will be fine. And when they don't, he's like, I'm gonna kill you, not just because I hate your beliefs, but because you're just so hard-headed, okay? Those who denied that they were or had been Christians Uh, when they invoke the gods in words dictated by me, offer prayer with incense and wine to your image, meaning the image of the emperor, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose together with statues of the gods and moreover, cursed Christ, none of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do. So they have to deny their faith, curse Jesus, and offer a sacrifice to the Roman emperor. These I thought should be discharged, meaning if you did that, if you said, I'm just kidding, my, I, my buddy, I'm not really a Christian, you know, I, I went to church, but it was for all that sweet wine, and I'm not really a Christian, forget Christ, and you curse Christ, I love the Roman gods, you know, hail, hail the Roman emperor, I, I love him, he's the best, then uh, you would be discharged, you would not be killed or imprisoned. Others, named by the informer, declared that they were Christians, but then denied it, asserting that they had been, but ceased to be, some three years before, other many years before, some as much as 25 years They all worshiped your image and the statues of the gods and cursed Christ. They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively to a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery. 
not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. So he's saying, when they said, hey, you're gonna kill me for my faith, but here's all we're doing. We get up early on Sunday and we worship Christ and we vow not to live in wickedness. That's really all we're doing. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. Even this they affirmed they had ceased to do after my edict by which, in accordance with your instructions, I had forbidden political associations. Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. You don't have women as elders or pastors much at all throughout church history, but you do have them as deacons because that's not a leading role. That's not a teaching role. It's merely a servant role. And most of those early deacons, by the way, minister to other women. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. That is an excellent view of kind of how persecution was. The Roman Empire just wants people to be calm. They know that Christianity could split the empire. Just keep worshiping the old gods, keep honoring the emperor, and everything will be fine. And so when Christians say, I can't do that, I cannot call someone else Lord, they're persecuted for that. But if you deny your faith, then you don't get persecuted. This is very much what the book of Revelation is about. You bow the knee to the emperor, you bow the knee to Rome, or you remain faithful to Jesus. And so remain faithful to Jesus because one day he's coming back and he is gonna bring the pain. Now, there's a lot of people that have persecuted Christians, but we're going to talk about Nero because he's the most interesting, okay? Now, look at this picture of this guy. Is that not like just neck beard McJerk face? Let me tell you where we get this picture. We don't have a picture of Nero. We have a bust of Nero, which is like a statue of someone's head. We have a bust of Nero, and we have descriptions of what he looked like. So an artist, I think it was an Italian artist, actually took both of those things and tried to put together what Nero most likely looked like, and man, he has a very punchable face, okay? Let's talk about Nero. He became emperor in 54 AD. When he was 16, he married his stepsister, okay? Ancient Rome sometimes is a little bit like Arkansas. His name in Hebrew numerology is 666, okay? His name in Hebrew, again, if you wanna know why I think that's what Revelation's referring to, uh, what Revelation is referring to, please listen to that uh, lesson on symbolism in the book of Revelation. He's a bad dude. He murdered his mother, his brother, and he kicked his pregnant wife to death. He also partook in two gay marriages, which were illegal in Rome, one in which he played the role of the groom and one in which he played the role of the bride, even consummating the marriage in front of his dinner guests. It is likely that Paul and Peter were martyred under the Neronian persecutions. And there was a great fire, you've probably heard about this, a great fire of Rome that destroyed much of the city. And there was a rumor that Nero started it. Some said that he dressed as an actor and played the liar, why it burned. By the way, Nero was an actor. He would even sometimes give birth on stage as a woman, as an actor. Uh, some said that he started the fire, uh, or as the, he started the fire and then played the liar as Rome burned. Others said that he wanted the fire to spark creativity and inspiration for his acting songs or poems. So Nero, though, found a scapegoat. He blamed the great fire of Rome on the Christians, which led to further hatred. So when people are saying, I bet Nero started this, he's so weird, he's always trying to burn stuff to the ground, he was that kid that was always lighting stuff on fire with a magnifying glass when he was, when he was little, that's the guy, he's a bad guy, he's like, uh, the Christians that we all hate. They're the ones that did it. And that led to further persecution because now the Christians weren't just this weird group that was meeting for different worship. They had now destroyed your city. The historian Tacitus says this, thus, first of those who confessed that they were Christians were arrested. And on the basis of their testimony, a great number were condemned. Although not so much for the fire itself as for their hatred of humankind. These divisive Christians. 
Thousands of Christians were killed by Roman's martyrs. Nero used to dip Christians in tar, impale them on spikes, and light them on fire to light his garden parties. So you'd go over to Nero's house to have a, you know, a sweet cup of coffee or something, and there's just Christians on fire all around you. And he'd say things like, ah, surely you are the light of the world. Tacitus says, Nero punished a race of men who were hated for their evil practices. These men were called Christians. He got a number of people to confess. On their evidence, a number of Christians were convicted and put to death with dreadful cruelty. Some were covered with the skins of wild beasts and left to be eaten by dogs. Others were nailed to the cross. Many were burned alive and set on fire to serve as torches at night. Okay? Why were Christians persecuted? Why were Christians hated so much in the Roman Empire? Like, look around, we're pretty nice people. We tell jokes and we love one another and we share stuff and we hang out and we fellowship. What was the big deal? Here are the reasons that Christians were persecuted in the Roman Empire. I'll give you several. Number one, their righteous behavior made them stand out as different. People hate when you're morally superior to them. They hate when you're doing something that's right and they're doing something that's wrong because they know what they're doing is wrong because God's law is written on our hearts. John 3, 19 through 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Hashtag Calvinism, okay? Next, the Christians only worshiped one God. That was offensive. Surely the Roman pantheon, the Roman gods would be mad at that. Christians were called atheists by the Romans. They hate them because they're atheists. And you say, well, wait a second, I'm not an atheist. I believe in one God. And they're like, yeah, but look at all the ones you deny. You deny Zeus and you deny Mars and you deny, all, I mean, you deny all these different gods. What is the deal? You are atheists. You are anti-religious. So I think that's very interesting that whereas our culture hates Christians because they're religious, the uh, early uh, you know, Romans hated Christians because they weren't polytheistic enough. Third thing, they didn't offer sacrifices to the emperor, Okay. Emperor worship and the emperor being deified was a common practice at this time. So all citizens, what you would do is you would bow a knee and you would say, Curios Kaiser, Curios Kaiser, which means Caesar is Lord. Keep that in mind when you read in the Bible that our, our claim is Jesus is Lord. That's, that's our highest allegiance. You would have to bow the knee and say, Curios Kaiser, Caesar is Lord, and you would have to offer a sacrifice to the emperor, not just like in honor of him like you would a king, but as some type of deity, and Christians couldn't do that, Okay that our claim was not Kyrios Kaiser, it's Kyrios Iesus, or Kyrion Iesun. That's our claim, that Jesus is Lord. Fourth thing, the agape, that's that meal they would have, and communion were super misunderstood, okay? Why did people think that when Christians gathered, they did evil things? A few reasons. First of all, the fact that they called that meal a love feast in agape led to rumors that it was an orgy, okay? That would be a love feast in other types of cultures in the Roman Empire, The fact that they said that they drank flesh, I'm sorry, that they drank blood and ate flesh led to the idea that they practiced cannibalism. So if you say, hey, we're gonna have a big love feast in this secret home and no one else is invited and then we're gonna eat some dude's flesh and drink his blood and you're a Roman, you're like, do what now? It's crazy, okay? In fact, there were a lot of rumors that they were eating children. Do you know why? Because Christians would adopt so many kids. The Romans, if they didn't want their baby, they would just leave the baby outside to die, right? Today, we just call that Planned Parenthood, but they would leave it outside to die, and the baby would die due to exposure, and so when Christians found a baby, they would just take it in and adopt it, okay? And so there was this thing that not only they're eating flesh and drinking blood, that they are eating babies. There was even this rumor that they would bake a loaf of bread and put a baby in it, and then they would cut that loaf open, and they would all eat the baby bread, okay? That was one of the things they thought. Now, if you think that's what's happening... You should certainly condemn Christianity, right? At that time, I mean, that's, that's crazy. 
The fact that they called each other brother and sister also led to rumors of incest, right? So my wife is not my sister in any physical sense. She's just my sister in a metaphorical spiritual sense because we're both Christians. But the fact that Christians called each other brother and sister and then you were married to a girl that's a Christian led to these rumors that you were actually physically brother and sister and led to these rumors of incest. So those were misunderstood. That did not help the Christian case. Number five of reasons why Christians were persecuted, Christianity became a distinct religion and not a branch of Judaism. Now, here's what's interesting. Though everyone had to worship the Roman gods, the Jews actually got an exception, okay? The Jews got an exception. They were one of the only groups in the Roman Empire that didn't have to do that, and so they had more religious tolerance than the Romans did to the Jews. When Christianity was thought to be a subset, a denomination of Judaism, things were protected, But as soon as that started to split, which you already see happening, for example, in the book of Acts, and Christianity is seen as a distinct religion, they no longer have that protection that the Jews would have had under Roman law. Number six, Christianity disrupted the Roman social pattern by exalting the weak, slaves, women, the poor, et cetera. Let me tell you why this is interesting. Our culture today loves the idea of helping the poor, helping the oppressed, helping the weak, We exalt different races, we exalt women, we exalt whatever it is. That comes from Christianity. What's so weird, they hate Christianity, but they're following this idea of love that God exalts the weak things of the world to shame the wise. That wasn't the case in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, you don't love the weak, they're the losers. In the Roman Empire, you love the strong, the smart, the talented, okay? In the Roman Empire, you want all citizens to look like Jared Lawson, that's what you want, okay? You want these perfect, powerful, smart, just handsome people. Uh, Celsus, a second century philosopher who's a pagan, says this about Christians. Far from us, say the Christians, be any man possessed of any culture or wisdom or judgment. Their aim is to convince only worthless and contemptible people, idiots, slaves, poor women, and children. These are the only ones whom they manage to turn into believers, okay? He's pointing out that Christianity can't be right because it lets in the people that society despise. It lets in the kind of people that we shouldn't care for. We should care for the strong, the smart, the talented, the great. That's not how God works. God says to Israel in the Old Testament, I didn't choose you because you were the prettiest girl at the ball. That's a paraphrase. I didn't choose you because you were the greatest nation. I chose you because I set my love on you. God doesn't choose the best and the brightest. He chooses the worst. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Number seven, their love and morality was convicting to the pagans around them. Emperor Julian says this about the Christians. The Christian faith has been especially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, the Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. Why those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render to them. So even being pro-pagan, as Julian was, who hated Christianity, he still says, man, the Christians are doing better than we are. They're they're doing all these loving things. We can't get our own people to help everybody, but the Christians, for some reason, do so. Number eight, unlike the Jews, the Christians promoted evangelism. You see, if you're Jewish, that is an ethnic thing in the Old Testament. That's one of the reasons that circumcision is not like baptism. Circumcision is linked to ethnicity. The son of a Jew is physically a Jew. The son of a Christian is not necessarily a Christian. They might be reprobate. They might be a non-believer. And so there's this ethnicity element in Judaism that you have where, yes, you can become a Gentile and convert to Judaism, 
but you still have to be part of the social system. You still have to become Jewish. So most Jews kind of keep to themselves. They're not doing mass evangelism. There are Jewish evangelists. It's just not a big push. In Christianity, evangelism is a huge push. I mean, that's one of the big things we do is we tell people about Christ and we call them to repentance, etc. And so that caused problems in the Roman Empire. If you just have your own religion, cool. You're not bugging anybody. But when you start trying to convert others and saying, stop worshiping the Roman gods, stop worshiping the emperor and come follow Christ, if you're the emperor, you're thinking, now these people are disloyal. I don't have loyal citizens. And also, they're gonna make all the gods mad. But the reason Rome is great, we're obviously loved by the gods because we're the greatest nation the world has ever known. What happens if you make those gods mad? Rome will crumble. So there was this fear of people converting to Christianity. Number nine, the person Christians worshiped as God had been crucified. That is a huge stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, to quote 1 Corinthians, okay? I wanna show you this image here. This is a very famous image. I have a picture of this actually hanging up in my office. This is Roman graffiti, okay? See, you thought graffiti was a modern thing where you take a spray paint and make like a, a big bee with a big crown on it or something. So we've, we've always had graffiti. They just had to etch it into the wall. So this is a piece of graffiti that uh, archaeologists have found. This is what is known as the Alexamenos graffito. It's also called the graffito blasphemo, the blasphemous graffiti, okay? This, is, this was done sometime between the first and third century, and here's what this is. This is a picture of a guy worshiping someone on a cross as God who has a donkey for a head, and I'm using the word donkey just because there are kids in here. Most resources don't use that nice word. Okay? But they're worshiping this figure up on the cross who has a donkey for a head. And here's what that says in Greek. It says, Alexamenos Sebete Theon, meaning Alexamenos, that's the name of this guy, worships his God. Alexamenos, so he's making fun of Christians. Here's a guy worshiping a guy who's crucified. He puts a donkey on it. They're just trying to make fun of Christ. They're trying to make fun of this. You don't worship things that get crucified. They're obviously not great. You worship things that are just powerful. You worship things that don't come down and mingle with the commoners. And so they hated Christianity partially because Christ was crucified. That's hard for Jews who are expecting a Messiah who doesn't get crucified. That's hard for Greeks and Romans who want uh, a God who doesn't have to take on weakness and take on humanity and die for our sins. Why did Christianity spread so easily? So we just looked at some reasons why they're persecuted. Why does Christianity spread so easily? By 250 AD, there were about 50,000 Christians in Rome, which is amazing. Remember, cities back then were much smaller than they are today. We hear 50,000 and we think, ah, whatever. You have to realize the entire world population by then was not 8 billion people like it is today. It was much, much smaller. So there were about 50,000 Christians in Rome. By 312, 5 to 10% of the city were Christians. By 313, it became a legal religion. We'll have another lesson on that with the conversion of Constantine. But Christianity is blowing up in the early church. It is, it is spreading like wildfire despite the fact that they're being persecuted. Few reasons for that. One we've already mentioned, Roman roads. Okay? Now, you don't understand what a big deal that was. If you didn't have a road and you had to walk from one city to another city, especially if you had you know, some animal pulling a cart or you had you know, cargo to bring, you're literally walking through grass that's up to your knees, then you walk through woods and you trip over stumps and there's rocks and then your oxen or whatever gets hurt and then you break away. You've played Oregon Trail. You know how it is, right? Bad things happen. So having roads that you could walk on and especially that you could pull carts on made ideas, merchandise, all that stuff travel much, much quicker, okay? And so the Roman roads were a huge deal. Another thing that caused Christianity to spread really quick, quickly was the Greek language, okay? 
Greek was, again, the most common language in the Roman Empire, and so that allowed people to communicate much easier. Had the New Testament, for example, just been written in Aramaic or something like that, that'd be very difficult. Only some Jews would know it, or people in Palestine. A lot of Jews didn't even know Aramaic. And so having Greek there was really, really helpful. Why was Greek so prevalent in the Roman Empire? Well, there was this guy, and his name is Alexander the Pretty Good, okay? Alexander the Pretty Good had conquered the known world in his 20s. What were you doing in your 20s? You were just hanging out with friends playing Goldeneye, right? He's conquering the known world in his 20s, which is why he is Alexander the Great. And that spread Greek culture and Greek language throughout the world. Quick thing on the Greek language. The oldest form of Greek, which was, uh, used by the, uh, was actually uh, used with the Phine- uh, Phoenician alphabet, is called Linear B. It goes all the way back to the 13th century. It's really, really old. Classical Greek is the Greek of guys like Homer and Plato. So when people say that they know Greek, you need to ask what kind of Greek. Classical Greek is Plato, Homer, kind of the refined uh, Greek of, uh, you know, the great literary figures in uh, Greece. And that goes back to about the 8th century BC. From Classical Greek branched three dialects of Greek, Doric, Aeolic, and Ionic. From Ionic branched Attic, and from Attic we get Koine. What does that mean? So... The kind of Greek that we have in the New Testament is not the refined, polished Greek of someone like Plato or Homer. It is a Judaized street Greek, okay? It is is koine, it's the reason it's called koine. Koine means common. So it is a common Greek. It It is written not just for the cultural elites, it's written for the average person. You would send texts in koine Greek, you would tweet in koine Greek, you would write a quick grocery list in Koine Greek. It's, it's the language of the people. So God, even in writing his word, doesn't use the most refined version of Greek, doesn't use Latin or whatever. He uses a common Judaized street Greek, which would have been something that the people could understand. So that's what you have. That, that, that easy to read, common understanding of Greek made these letters able to circulate and people able to read those a bit easier. Greek became the lingua franca, which literally means French language, but that's a phrase that just means the most common language. It became the most common language of the uh, Roman world at that time, even even in the time of Jesus. Notice this, that when they put over Jesus' cross, that he's the king of the Jews, here's what the Bible says, John 19, 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, that's for the Jews, In Latin, that's the official language of Rome, and in Greek, so the common people could understand that he was being crucified for being a pretender king, for being someone who is uh, the king of the Jews, when obviously there's no king but Caesar. Third reason Christianity spread, the Pax Romana, what is called the Peace of Rome. The benefit of having Rome be such a powerful empire is that for a lot of its history, you had relative peace. Yes, at certain places they'd have wars, and yes, definitely towards the end of the Roman Empire, everything is crumbling. But in that middle part, things are pretty good. You, you have peace. They have uh, Roman soldiers along major roadways to keep bandits from attacking you. They have uh, people that are Roman marines sent out to stop pirates in the Aegean. You have certain benefits by having Rome be so powerful. You have protection, you have wealth, you have these kind of things. That helped Christianity spread. Number four, it was open to everyone. That's one of the things that was attractive about Christianity. It was open to everyone, not just the elites. Anyone could become a Christian on the condition of faith. Certain religions were just for certain groups. For example, Mithraism, it's the worship of Mithras, was really common amongst Roman soldiers. That was just, but it was mainly just for Roman soldiers. Yeah, you could get into that cult, but it's really just me and all the, the, the boys I'd gone to war with kind of thing. Whereas Christianity is open to all. You can be a man or a woman. That was scandalous. There were some religions that women couldn't be a part of. 
You could be of different races. You could be of different ages. You could have different backgrounds. You could be rich or poor. That allowed people to uh, come into the faith and made Christianity spread more easily, okay? And then number five, it only required faith, not circumcision or dietary laws. That was a big hang-up for people. I don't know if you know why, but it's a big hang-up for people, okay? So what you had is you had, in the ancient world, some people who actually thought the God of Israel was the one true God. You have people that are called God-fearers. What is a God-fearer? Cornelius is said to be a God-fearer in the book of Acts. It is somebody who worships the Jewish God and believes that he's the one true God, but they're not willing to fully convert to Judaism. Why? Because then you have to become Jewish. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep food laws. You have to keep holy days. There is a high bar to becoming Jewish. I heard uh, a uh, lady speaking uh, recently who had converted to Judaism, and she said in that class at their synagogue, it's just only women, right? Because a woman doesn't have to be circumcised. The guys don't want to do that, okay? Again, for, you just ask, yeah, ask, ask somebody. Okay, so, so it only required faith uh, to, you know, to allow somebody to, uh, to come into the church. Let's talk about one more thing, a theological issue that's going to come up in the early church, and then we'll, uh, we'll have some time for questions. There's an issue that comes up several times in church history, okay? At least three major times, but it will keep coming back. And here's the question. How pure does the church have to be knowing that it's made up of sinners, okay? Let me ask the question this way. Imagine that we all live in the Roman Empire, okay? We all live in the Roman Empire and we're being persecuted for our faith. Some of you will be tortured and imprisoned and you'll remain faithful. Some of you will be killed for your faith and you'll remain faithful. But some of you, maybe Tim, maybe one of the other guys, will deny Christ so that they don't get persecuted, okay? Once the persecution's over, do we let that person back into the church? That's the question. Because on the one hand, Jesus says that if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. But on the other hand, Peter does that a bunch and he's still forgiven. So what do we do? What do, we do? How pure does the church have to be, okay? So what would happen is, if you were being persecuted for your faith, you would have to sometimes worship the emperor and you would be given a certificate that says that you had done it, kind of a get out of jail free card. You'd be given that certificate. What do you do for a Christian who didn't actually deny Christ but forged one of those or bought one from somebody so that they didn't have to deny Christ? Do they still need to be kicked out of the church? What do you do about somebody who didn't deny Christ but they gave up a copy of the scriptures to be burned? because the Romans also want your Bibles. So if you were someone who had handed over the Bible, you were called a tratiatores. If you ever wondered where we get our word traitor, it comes from that. Traitors are those who hand over. That's what the word means, because they would hand over copies of the scriptures. So the question is, if somebody in here, or a bunch of us, had denied Christ, or worshiped the emperor, or handed over a copy of the Bible, or bought fraudulent certificates, saying that we had denied Christ even though we hadn't, and then the persecution ends. There's no more persecution and Parkway is open again and we come to meet. Do we just let everybody back in? Do we say, obviously you're not a Christian? You know, do we make them go through the membership class again? How, how does it work? How does it work? Now this issue, before it came up, there was another issue uh, that the church had dealt with on the issue of fornication. For what about Christians who have slept with somebody who's not their spouse before they're married or the one who's, who, somebody who's committed adultery? And there's this kind of showdown on this same issue. Okay? Should the church offer forgiveness to those who had committed fornication and adultery? Hippolytus, a theologian, said no. No, they're obviously not Christians. They're outside of the church. The Bible's very clear. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then there was a guy named Calixtus, a bishop, and he said yes. 
So there was already this precursor. Well, what you have in the early church is another theological showdown from a guy named Cyprian on the one side. He's the more lenient one. He wants Christians to be let back in. And then you have a guy named Novation who doesn't want them to be let back in. Here's what Cyprian, who's a a bishop in Carthage, says about this. Those who did not sacrifice to the emperor but purchased certificates saying that they had could be let back into the church immediately. Okay, they hadn't actually denied Christ. They tricked the authorities by buying those certificates. Those who actually sacrificed but were repentant could be forgiven, but it wasn't until they were on their deathbed. They couldn't come back to the church. They could be forgiven on their deathbed of that sin. Those who had sacrificed but had not repented could not be let back in, period. Okay? But on the whole, Cyprian was more lenient towards those who had lapsed. His opponent, Novation, a priest from North Africa, thought Cyprian was being too lenient and did not think that the lapse should be admitted to the church. Now, the reason I tell you this as one final kind of thought before we, uh, we do Q&A, this, this church history, the reason we study church history is because it helps us understand the Bible. It's not an authority in addition to the Bible. It helps us interpret the Bible. We study church history the same reason a pastor studies Greek, so that they can unlock the Bible, okay? That's why we study church history. This issue will come up over and over again. Here are the two issues that you need to be thinking about as we think about early Christianity. One, how pure does the church have to be knowing that it's made up of sinners, okay? Is it a hospital for sinners or is it a country club for saints? Second, does someone have to prove they are repentant? This is the birth of the idea of penance, okay? Penance, which will dominate in Christianity through most of church history. Luther even wanted to have penance be one of the sacraments. He changed his mind, but that's how big this was. Penance is this idea that not only do you repent, but you must do these things, one, to show you're sorry, and two, to teach your mind and body what you should be desiring, righteous things. The birth of penance starts with this idea because what some of the church leaders says is, we'll let them back in once they prove how holy they are now. Once they prove how sorry they are, penance begins with this whole issue between Cyprian and Novation. I'll give you an example of where we have to deal with this issue even today. Let's say that somebody divorces their spouse for unbiblical reasons, or they keep committing adultery on their spouse and they're unrepentant. We will kick you out of the church. We will do church discipline on you because we love you and the Bible commands us to, okay? What happens when that person comes back a year later? So let's say there's a guy and he cheats on his wife with his hot secretary, okay? And we say, that's sin, will you repent? And he says, nope, I'm divorcing my wife. I wanna be with my secretary, okay? And so we do church discipline and he's out of the church. And then a year later, he comes back and he's now married to that secretary. He's divorced his wife, he's married to that secretary. And he says, you know what, guys, I'm so sorry. I knew this was sin, I shouldn't have done it. I have been convicted. I obviously can't leave my new wife, right? That would be sin to divorce her. So here I am, can I be let back into membership? What do you do? On the one hand, you want to say, well, if they're really repentant, we can't say no to them. The whole gospel is that people commit horrendous sins, even as Christians, and yet we need forgiveness. We need mercy. On the other hand, we're like, I feel like you're cheating the system. Do we see, do we make him prove that he's a believer? If so, what does that look like? For how long? Do we make him do penance? You see, this issue is a big issue that we deal with even today, and it begins here in the early church. Let me pray, and then we'll do some some questions. Almighty God, we thank you for today and this chance to study a little bit more about uh, our spiritual family tree, about those who have loved, uh, have loved Christ before we did. We pray that you would help us learn from the past so that we don't commit the same mistakes. We thank you for the early church. We thank you for their faith. We ask that you would protect us. We pray that there wouldn't be persecution. That's always what's best. But if there is, we pray that we would love Christ enough to not give in. It's for his name and glory we pray. Amen.